Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Everybody, it's Bob again. I've got It's Already Inside, Nurturing Your Innate Leadership for Business and Life Success. And I've got Robert S. Murray on the line today. Hey, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, my pleasure, Bob. Thanks for having me. Hey, I just wanted to ask, what's the S stand for? It stands for Scott. But, oh. uh, it, you know, as I was dis- <laughs> I discovered a long, long time ago when I tried to get email addresses um, that there is a lot of Robert Murrays in the world. So I just decided when I wrote the book to add my middle initial. <laughs> a smart tactical move. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know what I love about this book is it's how it's all anecdote driven. I mean, there's so many great stories in it. And uh, I just wanted to know, it was... Was that your original idea? Yeah. You know, a long, long life of leadership and and leading teams. And one of the things I discovered a long time ago with uh, trying to motivate and inspire teams um, and just, you know, engage them was that uh, people really, really respond to uh, why, why they need to do certain things. And uh, the best way for me to get that done was through stories. And um, people love to hear stories. So that's that's really where it came from is just, um, you know, telling short stories to teams. Nice. Well, I, I find that, you know, if you're trying to educate people, it's much better to wrap it in a story because they can recount it a lot better than giving them bullet points. That's right. And I can remember it too that way. Yeah. <laughs> you can wing it if you have to. So let's talk about, you know, why you feel that leadership is already inside you and not something um, that that is has to be taught type of thing. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where pe- people will often ask me, and maybe you'll even ask me during this um, this discussion we're having, is, is are leaders born or are they made? And, and I say it's a little bit of both. And, you know, I, th- I believe that it's innate in all of us. And, and, people, and I think people sometimes mistake leadership for charisma. And, you know, they'll tell me about these per- this person who is a born leader. And when I really look at, you know, the details of that person, it, they're just very, very charismatic. They really don't understand how to get people to move from one place to another willingly. Uh, quite often charismatic people, you know, will get people to follow them out of, out of fear or, or some other factor. Uh, I believe that, you know... Everything that we need is already there. We just need to nurture and we need to practice it. Um, You know, it's kind of like public speaking, for example. You know, President Obama is probably one of the best public speakers that there is right in modern times. But he was a terrible speaker when he was in university. You can just look up a a Google video of him speaking. Um, It's you have to nurture it. You know, that's interesting because, you know, I was watching a, a presentation by Leon Musk, who, you know, everybody knows as, as Mr. Batteries and Electric Cars. And, uh, you know, he's an awful presenter, but he's so passionate and he has such belief and he has such clarity of what needs to get done. It doesn't really matter. Do you feel that uh, clarity and, and understanding the direction that you have to lead your people is one of the most important things that a leader has to have in, uh, before he can really lead? You know, I, I think the, the things that a leader needs to have in their toolkit is they need to understand that um, everybody on the planet has a purpose. 
whether they consciously know that or not. You know, they they have their own personal why, and that's linked strict, you know, inexplicitly to um, values or individual values. And a leader who understands that and then is able to match that with the the values of where they need to go as an organization, they're more successful. So they're in in short, it's a leader who understands. Um, values that's, that they understand purpose and then then they have a vision a clear and compelling vision of where you want to go let's dive into the book a little bit now um you know looking at the the, the table of contents it, it's it's very structured in in small chunks is this because most leaders don't have any time to actually learn how to be leaders uh yeah you know, it's it's interesting because I originally wrote the book for a lot of people that I was mentoring and you know, mostly 30-somethings that had great educations and they were really, really frustrated that their career was not moving ahead far enough or fast enough. And what they dis- what I was discovering with them was that they were super intelligent people, great educations, but they lacked emotional intelligence that a leader needs to have. And so the, I really wrote the book for them. Um, you know, and then subsequently, I, I've had lots of CEOs come up to me and and say, you know, gee, thanks for the kick in the pants. You know, thanks for the reminder about that. Well, you know, you say emotional intelligence. Let's dig down on that. Do you think that you know leaders? Well, let's let's just back it up a little bit. Do you think that um, business schools are failing uh, in, in letting people know that this is a critical part of uh, being able to uh, lead people and and um, even when you're not leading, you're in senior management, or, or even if you're junior management, you have to have that uh, tool. Uh, short answer, yes. Uh, you know, I first and foremost, and what I discovered, especially when I got into the boardrooms of large corporations, and, and, you know, one of the organizations I worked with was a Fortune 50, is that everything that we did was logical and rational. And it was very textbook kind of thing, you know, we spend our, spent our days analyzing spreadsheets type thing. But human beings all make their decisions emotionally, you know, from our consumer purchases to the people we choose as friends and, and, uh, and you know, if, to marry or, or spend the rest of our life with. It's all an emotional decision. So the leaders that get it understand that the way you're going to get a rational, logical target achieved is by connecting emotionally with people. Well, that you know, that almost touches on the, like the marketing side and, and brand philosophy and strategy. But let's talk a little bit about like the ego versus uh, emotional strategy. In, in the sense, as as a leader, you know, they tend to have a tremendous ego um, because that's what's driven them to the point where they are a leader. Um, but then there, there's like you said that there's the emotional strategy part where they're conscious of what they're doing. I, I know a lot of ego-driven people that are totally unconscious of the people uh, around them, and they tend to piss people off. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's it's a that's a great comment because you know I've worked around some amazing amazing leaders that don't have what you would call you know the leadership resume, and then I've ha- I've worked around some people who have got education from the finest schools in the world, uh, you know, whether it be an MBA, and I've worked around a couple of PhDs in business from the finest schools in the world. And, you know, they had zero emotional intelligence. And as a result of it, they got short-term results out of fear, but they never got long-term results. And their shelf life, their personal shelf life, uh, never lasts. You know, so it's, it. you're right, it's the ones that are able to emotionally connect and 
they may even be aware of their ego, but they're able to park their ego um, in favor of the people they're leading. Yeah, it's being it's being conscious, or, or it's almost like you have to have a, like a Zen like attitude of being in the moment at all times, in, to the point where you're angry, and in the back of your mind say you're being angry now, which is okay, but don't let it escalate and give the person a chance to defend themselves. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely, and and again, you know, the best leaders I've ever worked with and around are ones that um, really take on this sort of servant mindset, and. Um, they get what they want through service to others. Yeah, it, it's it's. Um, I, I call that like leading through example. Where where if you want people to do stuff, you have to be doing it in front of them at all times, almost to a ridiculous level for them to actually pick it up. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, and it's funny as as a leader, one of the things that and this again comes back to emotional intelligence. A lot of things that leaders don't understand or people that are leading don't understand is that everything you do, it's like you're under a microscope and everything you say as if you're you know, speaking through a megaphone. It's, it's magnified and amplified. Let's talk a little bit about um, how to read this book. Is a book that you can jump around and I mean, it's broken down into such small chunks. Um, but really going through the content, it, it almost looks like each chapter plays on the next phase. Is it something you can kind of jump around in or, or, or will you get better value by kind of going from page one all the way through? Um, you know, I think that's really up to the individual, Bob. It, you know, I wrote it unstructured. I just sat down and, um, and I just wrote. I just wrote as I did, you know, how I felt that particular day. And then when I had a bunch of stuff in the can, so to speak, I started looking at it and I started put arranging it in a way that made logical sense. So some people have come to me and said, wow, love the book, read it page by page, chapter to chapter. And other people said, you know, I picked up the book and I don't even know if I've completely read it because I just sort of thumbed around and when I saw a title that was interesting, it spoke to me and I read it. Uh, okay, so this book is full of amazing anecdotes and stories, and I know this is an unfair question, but do you, do you have like a, fi- a, a favorite one or one that uh, resonates really well with you? I do. I do, and it's interesting because it, it, that's, that's the beauty of the book, you know, in terms of the feedback that I get from people is that um, it's different for everybody. You know, for me, there's some really emotional chapters in there. You know, one, you know, being the very first chapter of my life, uh, you know, as as a high school student with uh, Terry Fox, who is a well-known Canadian. And um, then, you know, the, another very emotional one was where a friend and colleague uh, died in my arms one day uh, when we happened to be out of town together. And, you know, the leadership lessons that I speak to in both of those, incredibly emotional. Uh, but then there's also sort of like, really? That really happened kind of chapters where <laughs> one day I was accidentally out for a run and I hooked up or connected for a run with uh, Billy Idol. And um, I didn't know it was Billy Idol at the time, not until after the run did I know that. Uh, but during the run, we had a 45-minute conversation about business and leadership. And it was uh, one of those kind of like, really? That really happened kind of kind of things. But yeah, it did. It really happened. Well, you know, it, it, it kind of uh, highlights the point that if you go into a situation where you talk to people and you don't have the baggage of their experience or their wow factor, like if, if you ran into Billy Idol and you knew he was Billy Idol, the conversation would have been very different. It would have been probably a little less open and maybe you would have been a bit more gushy because you're affected by that a person, you're being affected by that a person's um, 
uh, let me try that again. You've been affected by that person's um, persona or aura that you have manufactured yourself, and and you're not getting the value out of it. Where and, and I think that happens a lot with with great leaders. Look, Lee Iacocca and, and, and industry leaders, and, and just even people within your industry that you're admiring, mm-hmm. and you go to them and you're tongue tied, and you you really can't get the value out of that experience. And for them, they don't, you know, if they're good leaders or, or, or good teachers, um, they're totally willing to give you any information you want because they know that knowledge is great, it's very needed, but it's the drive behind that knowledge which will put that person in uh, in a leadership position. No, no, absolutely. I completely agree. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's fascinating you're saying that because as you're saying that, I'm remembering... I remember a time when I was in Toronto once as a junior leader and, and I was in a hotel and I was riding down on the elevator and it stopped mid-floors, or not mid-floors, but it stopped on a floor and Wayne Gretzky and his wife hop on the elevator. So it's just the three of us on the elevator. I know that it's Wayne Gretzky and I'm tongue-tied and staring at the floor for the rest of the ride down. Um, whereas this particular time with Billy Idol, it was 7 o'clock in the morning in a place where you would never expect to see a rock star being in the first place, plus the fact that you think, well, rock stars are just going to bed at seven in the morning. They're not actually out for a run. <laughs> um, you know, so it, I just put it out of my mind that, that, you know, this guy looked like him, but nah, it can't be. Well, you know what's fascinating there is, is you said something. Nobody believes that a rock star would be up at seven in the morning running around. But at the end of the day, being a rock star is a business. And either you run it yourself or you let a bunch of people run it for you. And, uh, you know, that that's a big decision as a leader. Um, are you running your organization or is the organization running you? Do you think that's a fundamental flaw with a lot of leaders? Yes. It is, and and you know, and I and I make the you know the definition of a leader is somebody who really understands their values, where they're going, and they have a plan for that. Um, versus managers who are highly educated, they got great jobs, and they actually could be the CEO of the company, but they're a manager, not a leader. They might have a leader by title, but um, they really don't understand where they're going, and there's someone else's plan at play that's taking them on that journey. Do you think that's just uh, a lack of self-confidence or they just haven't read a book like this? I'd like to say it's because they haven't read a book like this, but uh, <laughs> it, it, I think it's got a lot to do with a whole bunch of different things. I, I, you know, I, um, confidence is one of them, um, just not having a clear understanding um, of their own value sets. You know, and, and a real quick way to look at that is that you know, if you were actually to write down your five top values – that are the most important to you that you hold near and dear to your heart. And if you are truly living them and honoring those values, then you will find that you're motivated and inspired and every day is energetic and every day you feel like you're living your dream versus when you are being forced by someone else to live your lower priority values, then you'll discover that life, uh, your work life is, is drudgery. Well, I mean, yeah, it's. I was thinking about that this morning. I, I drive my wife into town because she hurt her leg, and because I run my business, I just said, "Well, I'm going to take a couple hours off this morning and drive my wife down to her appointment because she's on crutches, and and that's what I'm going to do." I didn't have to get permission to do it; I just did it. And I know that the amount of work that I'm going to put in today will far exceed that two hours that I took off. Right, is it because you're energized and motivated around your business, right? And and it's uh, um, 
you know, I see entrepreneurs who are just struggling to get through their their day to day life, and then I see entrepreneurs who are actually not making a whole lot of money, but there are they they wouldn't trade it for anything. Uh, and the difference is one's leading their values or living their values, and one isn't. Do you think the fear of failure is is one of the the most difficult things for a, a true leader to get out of their backpack and stop stop hauling it around? Um, fear of failure, fear, fear. I've talked to a lot of leaders, and, and um, uh, they um, there's an actual name for it, but it, I can't, it can't. It's not coming to me right like now. Like a phobia, but, you think? Well, it's <laughs> there's this uh, there's this thing that a lot of leaders struggle with, and it's a fear of being found out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fear, what it's uh, feeling that they're they're a fake and and they shouldn't be there. And one day somebody's going to come to the office and says, "You're a fake. Get the hell out of here." Yeah, that's exactly it. And I talk to so many people. I've talked to leaders of billion dollar companies that will tell me that's their biggest fear. And you know, you look at them and you say, "Well, you've built this company from zero to over a billion dollars. Like, really?" But in their mind. That's they they think that you know they're like that proverbial duck, calm on the surface and struggling underneath. Well, how, how does a leader address that? I mean, and, and it's that's an impossible question. I know. I mean, and this isn't just leadership. This is the general headspace of every single person out there. I mean, it, it just is. I mean, if they have any worth. I mean, if you're delusional, there's nothing you can do. But really, um, artists that don't really feel that they're artists, even though they're doing great art, um, people that are athletes that are doing amazing things with their bodies and blowing everybody away when they look at them, they themselves are, are self-critical. Do you think it is too much self-criticism, um, or is that a driving force to what makes them great? I, I think it's partially, you know, part of that driving force is what makes them great. They're always striving to be better. Um, I think they might be, you know, and I'm not a psychologist, but, you know, there's a lot of uh, childhood issues that come to play in, in there. Um, you know, it's um, one of those things where I don't think that, you know, we give ourselves the, the freedom to sort of say, yep, I'm afraid of that, but I'm going to do it anyways. Um, you know, people just, you know, just being honest with yourself and saying, yeah, I've got those fears, but, um, you know, damn it, I'm going to do it anyways. Yeah, I, I think that takes a lot of bravery. Um, and it's the same type of uh, bravery that when you're, you know, starting your business that makes you walk into that room at, at the Chamber of Commerce and meet a bunch of people that you've never met before and do the small talk and, and build your network. That is a huge uh, fear that you've got to get over, and it, it's that takes uh, internal fortitude, if nothing else. Oh no, absolutely. Hey, you know, I do some coaching and on pe for people around public speaking. You know, so I'm blessed to be able to speak a lot, and it is amazing to me how many people that you would look at and you would say that person's the most successful person I've ever met. How absolutely terrified they are of doing something simple like, you know standing up in front of a group of maybe even their own team and speaking. And, you know, so most of what we work on is fear and getting over that. Yeah, it, it's, um, you know, I've got uh, the innate gift of the gab. And a lot of times if I'm at a restaurant, especially if I know the owner, um, I'll be very casual in, in the restaurant. And if, if the staff are busy and my friend's busy and somebody comes in the restaurant, I'll jump up from my table and say, excuse me, honey jump up from the table and go and say, hey, how can I help you? Yeah, no problem, blah, blah. Nine times out of 10, they think I'm the owner of the restaurant because I have no fear. You know, like only somebody that can own the restaurant 
would be ballsy enough to get up and actually help somebody sit down. And I always say, no, no, it's just my friend's restaurant. I'm just helping him out. I hope you enjoy your meal and I'll see if I can get you a discount. <laughs> I mean, that's what their job is supposed to be, to make people feel special, make people feel valued. Do you think um, that approach to management or, or at least people management is a very important part of leadership? Yes, absolutely. I've always said that uh, the best leaders that I've ever worked with and the one that I strive to be is one that's a servant leader and that they put everybody else's um, interest ahead of their own. You've mentioned that twice now, servant leader. Is that a catchphrase for you? Uh, is it something that you bring up in, in when you're coaching people and when you're speaking? Yeah, um, absolutely. Because it's it's been what I've been successful at. You know, I have been, you know, I've had a blessed career and, and I have always been a servant, uh, you know, right from my very first job of, you know, being a dishwasher in a restaurant kind of thing. I've had that mindset that I'm there to serve. You know, I, I had a, my my first real job was as a tradesperson, where I worked in a team with a team of people as an apprentice, and and my my mindset there was get my journeyman whatever he needs. And when I took that into leadership, um, it really really served me well because it really allowed for people to do their best versus them having to struggle and spend all their time thinking about, gee, how do I serve my boss? Um, you know, and I really try to make it comfortable for people to figure out, I want them to serve the clients, don't worry about serving me. Uh, my job is to serve you so you can serve the clients. Yeah, you could, you could go in one of these, these circles where you got people holding the door for each other and argue, well, you know, you go first, no, you go first. Yeah, exactly. If you have too much of that, I guess you can never have too much of that, but, but how does a leader... Um, get over that where, where person's uh, serving and, and has the right attitude, but they're doing it in the wrong direction. You know, one of the things I always say is that when things are going right, a great leader will look out the window at their team. And when things are going wrong, a good leader will look in the mirror. And so if you've got a good team and you're able to serve that team without ego, then you, um, and the, the rest of the structure you put in place is making sure that the team knows what their role is, what their responsibility is, and how, when they do their job, they contribute to the success of the entire team. Um, when you're missing those pieces, you can be the best servant leader in the world, but if you don't have those pieces in, in play, then you're not going to have uh, success in the business. So, you, you know, if a person is not getting that part and you've done everything you can, then you might have the wrong person or you might have done you know, you haven't given them all the tools they need yet. Yeah, I, well, you know, it's that classic one that that gets said too many times, but it's a truism, so obviously this is the reason why, is you got to get uh, the right people on the bus, and then when you get them on the bus, you got to the, get them in the right seat. I mean, it, it's just not crowding a bunch of people into a business. Like, hey, Gary, let's go. You've got to sit down. You've got to work with them. You've got to find out what motivates them, what uh, gets them up in the morning and, and uh, get them into that position. It might not happen right away. They might have to prove it. But I think a great leader has to be looking uh, at the um, at the staff he has in place and then actually sit down and get to know them so he can discover what their ultimate motivation is because nine times out of ten, it is not money. You're absolutely right, Bob. And that comes back to purpose and understanding what their purpose is so that you can make sure that you are giving them the opportunity to live that purpose and deliver your purpose. You know, so it's, it's a real, you know, it's, it's, that's where the emotional intelligence piece comes in. 
um, I find as well is that leaders who are unsuccessful are the ones that uh, are ego-driven. Again, we'll come back to that. Uh, and they surround themselves with people like themselves. And, um, you know, they just get more of the same versus surrounding themselves with people who um, are able to fill in the weaknesses that they have. Well, it's the, like the yes man syndrome, which goes, I mean, that, that goes back forever. You know, it, it, anybody that's super powerful ends up with people that will say yes to them to empower themselves. And that's kind of like a leech mentality. And, and a great leader has to be able to see through that and be self-critical and say, well, why did you say that was I should do that. That was a terrible decision. Why, why are you supporting my bad habits? You're just, you're not helping the company. You're not helping me. That's a hard thing for uh, an organizer to do because flattery is so easy to get stuck on. Yeah, and it's real easy for a leader to get, you know, to fall into that trap and go down that that vortex of being served versus serving. Do you think um, flattery is a bad way to manage people? I think, well, because people see through that and, and you know, the, the people can see when someone is being inauthentic. Um, they, they can see that and then that, that will quite often drive fear um, it is, as a motivator for, for an organization and fear is a short-term motivator. And, you know, so they see through that just as a good leader will see through people who are, you know, using flattery to, to get their way with the leader versus ones that, you know, that are, that are ego driven. And that's what they're looking for. So do you think it's the job of a leader, especially if that person's in their organization to basically maybe not call them out in public, but, you know, take them aside. It's dude, you're flattering people too much. It's nice once or twice. That's just being polite, but you're over, you're going overboard because they're just maybe not conscious of it. It's just a bad habit they've got into. Yeah. And, and well, it's always a private thing, right? And, uh, um, and, and I've had to do that in the past as well. And just, you know, just, so I really try to work to discover, well, why is this person behaving this way? Because that's, you know, that's not an authentic way to behave. And I'm sure that they don't behave that way with, you know, when they're around friends and fam family. Um, and that's how you want people to behave when you're, when they're in the workplaces as they really are. So what's causing that behavior? I'm fascinated with this chapter's title. This is chapter 18, and it says, uh, Never Walk Past Corporate Graffiti. What are you getting at there? That come from when I was reading Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, and oh, he was awesome. talking about, um, yeah, it's a great book, and when he was talking about Mayor Giuliani uh, trying to eliminate major crime in the United States or in New York, and the way he tackled it was to build graffiti teams that worked at either end of the subway system. So when a subway train rolled into its end of the line, uh, that team would then scrub off all the graffiti that appeared on the train cars during its trip. And then there would be another team at the other end when the train got back to the other end of its trip and do the same thing. And what they discovered was that there was a direct correlation between eliminating graffiti on the subway system um, and major crime in the city and they you know he further delved into the fact that when a graffiti a piece of a graffiti appears on a building and it doesn't um, is not removed within the first uh, seven days more graffiti will show up um, on that building um, so corporate graffiti could be something as simple as a piece of garbage on the floor uh, people behaving badly um, you know it, the list goes on and on and on and what I mean by that is the leader themselves 
if they see a piece of garbage on the floor or there's a box that's piled up in the corner which shouldn't be there, they remove them. And when people see that, then they will start to behave that way themselves. They will not walk past garbage. They will not walk past something that's not right when it comes to serving a customer, that type of thing. Yeah, that there's. Uh, it's been brought up in several books that 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 is probably one of the most powerful techniques is, is leading via uh, example. Uh, at what point? And I know this is kind of a, a contradiction about what you just said. At, but at what point does that become inefficient? Where you know, if you're walking, because it's like a Zen exercise. If those boxes are always there, and you're going, Jesus, aren't they getting it? At what point does the leader have to kind of pull somebody aside and say? Why aren't you doing this? Um, it's it's interesting because I've I've yes I've had to do that a few times you know when I've made it really really clear with uh, my direct team in terms of what are you know what our environment's going to look like for example and you know it's not that I'm a neat freak it's just there's a there's a certain way that you want your environment to be it's healthy for the organization and when they're you know, when I turn my back or I go, you know, to another office and then come back and discover that, you know, they're not living it, then I have to pull them aside and say, listen, you know, we, we've we've talked about this. Is there a reason why? That type of thing. However, what I've discovered is that most of the time when I'm leading by example, so, you know, if I see a gum wrapper on the floor and I pick it up, people look at me and go like, wow, okay, if he's picking up the gum wrapper, then he really cares about us. Yeah, well, yeah, it's a belief thing. If he's willing to do something that I should have done or the or if they're not a really good leader, the janitor should have done, um, then it kind of, if you're doing that all the time, it's leadership through example again. But I think a lot of people think that leadership for ex by example is like the big grandiose statements. Like, you know, I'm leading by example by, you know, coming to the office early and and driving in a fancy car and being bombastic and stuff as well. Yeah, yes and no. It's the small little details that really make you stand out, the subtle things that uh, stand out. And I think a lot of leaders don't understand it's the subtleties of what they do on a day-to-day -day basis that really, really uh, drive a brand or drive an organization to a specific point. Yep. Absolutely. And and it's interesting you mentioned brand, right? As there's a brand of a leader. They have the personal brand, and you need to always, always be on brand uh, as a leader. And you know, so I was really blessed to work with a mentor who who taught me that, and he and he really taught me the value of serving people. Um, again, come back to servant to leadership, and to and um, when I I'm really conscious of it, and so I make sure that I'm always on brand um, when I'm around people that I'm leading. So it and, and it, the moment because the moment you go off brand, people notice and they magnify it. And that you know, it also, if you're, if you have that philosophy of life, not just leadership, um, I think it also helps you being uh, authentic. Because if you're inauthentic and you're you're playing at a particular character because you think that's what I should be at work, uh, in the long run, it's going to drive you nuts because it's a lot of work acting. But if it's natural, it's it, it just flows and, and it's way more authentic. So do you feel that a lot of uh, leaders kind of not play act, but they just think, oh, I have to be this way, even though it makes me feel a little uncomfortable. That's what's expected of a leader. 
I think yes, you're absolutely right, and it and it is really, really. It's a that's a really tough game to keep playing. It is if you're going to be an actor. If you you look at Hollywood actors, and they'll go for a shoot for that'll last three months, where they're playing a character that is not them, and at the end of it, a good portion of them will take almost the next year off because it was so exhausting to be that character. And so you imagine if you're playing a character every single day who's not really you. Um, what's that? What's that doing to your energy? What's that doing to your health? What's that doing to your relationships? Oh yeah, I mean, it, 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 well, you know, it, it, let's talk about dating. For gosh sakes, I mean, it's one of the biggest mistakes a guy can make is he goes into a bar and he's read some books and says, "Oh, I'm going to be this way and this. I'm going to pick up a girl." Worst thing they could do. Worst <laughs> thing because you know, date number three, the girl's going to be looking at him real funny, like, "You're such a jerk." You know, she's going to buy into your original brand and she's not going to like. You're the the real you, not because the real you's bad. It's just because they feel cheated. Because no, I I kind of liked you because you were this way, and now I find out you're actually the other way. Same thing with a business or or a, a product. It, it's it's devastating. Uh, absolutely, because it comes back to again. Everybody makes their decisions emotionally. You know, so if you use the dating example, somebody's made a decision to go with you, go on a second date with you because of an emotional connection, and then they find out that that's really not the person that I was emotionally connected to. Then things start to fall apart. Uh, it's the same in the workplace. Is that people? You know, you've heard this many times that people don't quit a company; they quit a manager. Um, and and again, that's it's all emotionally connected. Yeah, I think uh, the people take things a little too personally. But yeah, it's very very frustrating. The few times that I actually worked uh, inside an organization, I would find it highly frustrating that I would get all my work done and then go to the boss and say, "Hey, you know, I'm finished, so I'm going to take the next two days off." And they go, "What?" I said, "Well, I've done everything you assigned me to do this week. It's Thursday, so I'm going to take." Friday off because I have nothing to do. And he said, oh, no, I can find something for you to do. Say, you know, dude, you don't get it. That's what's motivating me is I will do way more than anybody can do in this organization because I've always been my own boss. I'm just running my little office like my own boss. You got to give me that day off or I'm not going to bother working hard anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in times like that as well is that, you know, I quite often discovered people just in the wrong company, uh, you know, that they need to go and find a culture where, you know, that is embraced. Um, and there's lots of companies out there like that. Um, and, it, you know, it, it, I've, it's fascinating to me how many people sort of stick it out in an organization that's not a good fit for them. Well, I think looking for a job is just like, uh, it's one of those big fear things that everybody has. It's like a fear, what happens if I can't get another job? What, what, what? It's, look at it, it's, it's like if you don't go up and speak to a bunch of people, you're never going to learn to become a great leader. If you never quit your job and try and get another job, you're never going to understand how to pitch yourself and, and actually learn to become a great salesperson because that's what that is. Nobody likes to sell because it's damn hard and yet, people don't respect the skill set and like if if you're jumping from job to job you got to sell yourself and you can't oversell because then you're going to get fired and you can't under yourself because nobody's going to give you a chance so that is a very very important skill set and basically quitting or being fired and trying to get another job is a fundamental thing that you have to get you have to get through it and you can't be f- uh, afraid of it Absolutely. And that's, you know, there's, you're right. So many people hang in there. The fear of the unknown is what keeps them at a place that they're not happy at. How do people get over that then? Well, 
Yeah, I know. It's um, an easy one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's easy. It's an easy question, but it's a really hard to, to, you know, it's just one of those things where I think that, um, you know, somebody once told me the definition of courage is somebody who is, who is tired enough uh, and sick enough to, to not stay in the place that they are, you know, so they, they decide to move forward and, and, you know, they, they think it's out of survival. Other people look at it and say it's out of courage. Um, it's just one of those things where I think people have to recognize that what's that fear or they have to recognize the, the place that they're in is not the place that they should be and then just then take that first step. Well, it's in, it's inevitable. I mean, you're either going to do it out of, like you said, like a knee-jerk reaction. Like, okay, I quit. I can't handle it anymore. Or don't even turn up for work. Or look at it and say, look at this organization is not a good fit for me. I've tried to make it work. So then I'm going to make a strategic move. I'm not going to quit. I'm going to start looking for a great place and I'm going to transition. Big difference between quitting and transitioning. Yeah, no, no, absolutely, right? Absolutely. And and I and I and it's the same as if you're in a really bad relationship in your personal life. Uh, a lot of people will hang in there, but eventually they find that courage to say, "No, I can't I can't live this way anymore." Um, you know, and whether and you know and they and they don't care about the financial loss anymore. They they just move forward. Well, I I think also that People also have to understand that you got to give it a try. You can't just say, yeah, you know, I'm not happy with this marriage. I'm quitting it or I'm getting a divorce. No, you got to sit. You got to actually work with that person. You sit down with your wife and say, look at honey, I'm not happy. What can we do to fix that? And after going through that, just like a manager would sit down with a disgruntled employee or, or, or somebody that's, that's uh, not happy and say, look, at why aren't you happy? What can we do? Can we shift you into a different department? Because to find a new person and get them into a good position is very expensive. And if you can save HRs, uh, a burden for HR by sitting down and helping that person evolve into a better position, the company's going to be stronger. Yeah, and that's what good leaders will do, because good leaders recognize that if you've got an employee that say is making seventy five thousand dollars a year, good leaders know that to replace that person is going to cost you one hundred and fifty thousand uh, dollars in terms of lost, uh, you know, to sort of pay to take that person out, uh, recruiting costs, lost, uh, you know, the the learning that that person had, uh, and plus the development time to bring the new person up to speed. So they recognize that. So they will work really, really hard to, you know, see if that person can be a fit. But at the same time, if they recognize that they that person can't be a fit, they also fire fast. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Hire fast and fire fast. I, I like to I like to get them to hire slow. Well, okay. So, so how do you define slow? Because for me, it's like if you find a person that that has the right attitude, you can always train them. You, you, you hire for attitude and then train. For you, what's the, what? What is a fast hire? What is a what is a, an adequate hire? Well, it's in, it, I have the same philosophy as well. Is that you can hire for attitude? I hire for attitude. You can train for every other skill, and that it's re I, I've learned to be really, really careful because in the interview process with a new recruiter and new candidate, it's a bit of a beauty contest. They're on their best behavior. You know, they've had a shower, they've brushed their teeth and they, they've gone online and they've researched your company to death. They know what to say. You know, they've, they've probably gone on the web and downloaded a whole bunch of interview questions. So they have all their answers ready to go. So how do you find the real person that's in that actor? that's that's in front of you um, and that's where the higher slow part comes in where you know i will do things to a new candidate 
that will put them outside of their comfort zone. You know, I'll take them on an interview uh, in a busy shopping, busy shopping mall, or we'll go for a walk, um, you know, where there's lots of other people around. Something to throw them off of what they thought was going to be the norm, um, and then just see what they're like under pressure that way. And, you know, so I will do that, and that's the higher slow part, is that sometimes it takes time to uncover that. Yeah, I think if, if you've got like three or four candidates that are like you've gone through the dross and you've found, okay, these three people seem to be pretty good. I think that's a brilliant idea, putting them in, in an environment uh, just to see how they react because when you're not, you know, if they're hired, what are they going to be doing when they're sitting in that office? You're not going to be babysitting them the whole time. You've got to see how they handle situations and, and, and maybe not crises, but uh, dealing with uh, something that's unusual. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. I knew a great uh, leader many, many years back, and uh, he wouldn't do meetings. Uh, he would do, let's do the walk, let's do the talk. And I said, what's that? He said, well, come have lunch with me. I said, great. So I turned up thinking I'm going to sit down in a restaurant and have lunch with the guy. And he said, ready to go? I said, great. We walked. We walked for 45 minutes around the neighborhood, up around, and he would put, isn't that a beautiful tree? And he was just like, we didn't talk about business. We talked about life. And then just as we were about to come back to the, com uh, the company, we ducked into a soup uh, place and he said uh, we're going to get a minestrone soup now I mean I didn't even get to choose the soup we had a soup we went back to his office and we ate the soup while he reinvigorated the company and his whole philosophy is if you sit down and have a lunch as a leader um, you're basically zapping your um, afternoon so he would come in running 150 kilometers an hour or you know 150 miles an hour from the States and uh, basically start barking out orders and everybody would be reinvigorated. Before he was there, everybody had come off lunch, they had all this food, everybody was getting a little bit sleepy. In 20 minutes, that company was running at 100%. I've worked with a couple of people actually in that, uh, you know, that one, one uh, leader that I worked for, he once came into my office and said, uh, let's go for a 10 blocker. <laughs> you know? Or he some days, if it was a really, you know, a really tough conversation, he said, okay, let's go for a 16 blocker. And he had it all mapped out in terms of, you know, where we're going. And, and we would go and sometimes we'd have tough conversations with each other. Sometimes we'd have tough conversations about, um, you know, the state of the nation type thing. Um, but that was the way that he did it. And it was super effective. Uh, let's touch on chapter 19, which is meetings and other complete wastes of time. Do you think meetings are wasteful because the person throwing the meeting hasn't an agenda and doesn't push the meeting forward faster and get it over with quicker um, if it's possible? You know, I just think with most organizations, um, the, the way that it normally goes, and, and I've seen this a lot because now in my life, if, you know, if I'm not speaking, I'm doing turnaround or strategy work. So I get to see a lot of companies. The way most of them work is they schedule one-hour meetings, everybody talks, nothing gets done <laughs> until there's 10 minutes left in the meeting and somebody you know, will look at their watch and go, holy crap, there's only 10 minutes left. And then all of a sudden stuff happens. Um, you know, so the most effective meetings that I've ever been part of, um, you know, companies like WestJet Airlines in Canada, um, they have meetings where there's no chairs in the meeting room. So everybody stands up. Um, and that 10 minutes that normally happens at the end of the meeting at WestJet happens at the beginning of the meeting because people, it's not the norm, it's not comfortable and uh, they, get it, they get it done. Uh, they have an agenda, they have somebody who clearly sticks to the agenda and, and will point out when they're off topic uh, and it's very focused. What's one thing that our listenership should do today to, you know, bring out their 
inner leader? That is a really good question. Uh, you know, to one of the things that I would say that they do is have a really good long look in the mirror and ask themselves, what is it that they see themselves doing 12 months, 36 months, 60 months from now? Because uh, most people don't ever have that conversation with themselves. And what is it that you need to do in order to make that happen? And through that process, you'll uncover your own purpose. You'll uncover some of your own brand. You'll uncover your value sets. And you'll discover what's important to you. And um, when, you, when you nurture that part of your leadership toolkit, then you'll also realize that um, you, one of your jobs is to help other people find their purpose and what it is that they want to do and be. Yeah, forecasting, it's critical. I mean, we use it for business growth. Why can't we use it for personal growth? Exactly. Um, you know, you, you're, you're a smart guy, and uh, you've been doing this a long time. When you were putting the book together, what was your aha moment where something you already knew was real really became a, a bedrock understanding? It's like, wow, I really get that now. Um, I don't know if I can ever say that I really get that now because humans are <laughs> humans are messy beings and they and they keep changing and they keep surprising me. Um, I think it was just more of a personal discovery, and um, you know, and, and the things I discovered were the things that I took for granted that I had learned along the way. And some people from the outside looking inside at me would have said, wow, there's a natural leader. That guy was born a leader. Uh, and what they don't understand is that I worked really, really hard uh, to, to become the leader that um, I am and that I'm still working to be. And, you know, that's, I think, is something that is a common misperception of people. They just look at other people and say, wow, that person's got it really easy, you know, whether that be that, you know, that um, they look at them, you know, that, oh, that person is skinny or fit. They, they're, so, they're so nice because, they, you know, they're born that way. Well, no, they're not. They've worked at it. Um, you know, so it's the same for other people, you know, whether it's, um, you know, the, the Tim Cook, for example, at Apple, you know, some people would say, well, he's so lucky Steve Jobs just gave him the job. Well, no, he worked really hard to get to where he is. Uh, you know, so that's that's the thing for me. It, it's uh, there's no such thing as an overnight success. It usually takes about 15 years to do that. Oh, yep. <laughs> it's the 10,000 the 10, hour rule. <laughs> exactly. We've been talking with Robert S. Murray. It's already inside. Nurturing Your Innate Leadership for Business and Life Success. Robert, thanks for being on the show. Bob, thank you very, very much. Enjoyed the conversation. It was great. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash Business Book Talk. Follow the host on Twitter, at Bob Garlic. Visit the website, businessbooktalk.com, for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.